Hi, everyone. Welcome to the February 11th, 2022 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, last Friday night, the Douglas County School Board voted to fire Superintendent Corey Wise. The meeting itself did not feature a reason for Wise's ouster, but after the meeting, some board members commented on national news programs that they did not feel he supported where they wanted to go. The move was met with a student protest on Monday, and a resident of Highlands Ranch has filed a lawsuit claiming that the board violated Colorado's open meeting law before the firing. Patty Cahoon from Westward, you talked to our viewers last week and warned there were more fireworks to come. Did you expect these kinds of fireworks that we saw Friday night? I have a good imagination, but even I could not come up with just how inane that meeting was. So it went on three and a half hours. It ended with one of the board members asking if she could go home, a feeling I frequently have on this show, but I'm not going to have today. <laughs> we were so outdated so quickly. You had these board members, the, the majority four, voting to can Wise, who by all accounts, had, he'd been with the with the... Douglas County Schools for 26 years. He was a good man. I mean, he behaved honorably through this all, which was so interesting that he sat there and was able to uh, not run away or go home. But it was incredible. Where do they want to go? It sounds like maybe they want to go to Texas, where they can control the curriculum, get rid of any textbooks written after 1940, and it's just amazing. Now, on the good side for Douglas County, so I can say something, they have managed to hire a health director for their new health department. Good luck to him, and good luck to them with that. And their clerk did um, manage to get out of the investigation with Jenna Griswold, was not found to have done anything really that suspicious. But we are going to see nothing but craziness from this school board, and good for the students for walking out. Penfield Tate, a longtime state lawmaker, an attorney with Tate Law. Uh, Pen, a, a new majority of a school board can hire or fire whom they wish. That is their right. However, as you know, as a lawyer, uh, methodology counts for something. So as we saw how this went down, what are your thoughts? Well, you, you keep in mind a couple of things. We're talking about a newly elected majority to the school board, a school board where theoretically the superintendent, the principals, the teachers, and the board are setting an example for the kids within the district, which ought to scare you just off the top when you talk about Douglas County. Um, when, you, when, when Patty commented on the meeting, there's one thing we got to keep sight of. I commend Corey Wise for telling the board, I don't want a secret meeting. I don't want this in executive session. I want you to sit here in public and explain what you're doing. And the board did. And for, for those who are not lawyers, the, the board fired him without cause. And what that means is we has felt like it. We don't have any explanation. He didn't do anything wrong. We may make up some reason afterwards, but we just woke up this morning and decided we wanted somebody who thought more like us. So we just fired him. Period. He didn't do anything wrong. By all accounts, 26 years devoted to the district. Parents loved him. Kids loved him. Teachers loved him. That's why everybody was walking out. So if you ask yourself what's wrong with K-12 education in this state or in this country, and you look at the performance of the school board, that's your answer. And you, if you wonder why schools can't hire teachers um, and keep them engaged and why students show up sometime and not other time, Douglas County School Board has given you your answer.
Also join us via Skype, Kristen Strom, President and CEO of the Common Sense Institute. Kristen, what is the most important thing this board needs to do to move forward in a positive fashion? This is clearly not their uh, last move to fulfill whatever uh, promises they made on the election trail, but it sounds like there were lessons learned here for a board that seems to want to do better. Most definitely. I think the big picture is these school board elections have really become the microcosm of our broken political system. It's turned into World War III, which is not what anybody wants, and it's not the best way to run an educational system. Having said that, though, I'd like to point out that just a few years ago, this exact same thing happened in Jefferson County. New school board, they fired their superintendent right away. Elections have consequences, and that's the biggest lesson out of it. The idea that school boards don't have the right to fire or hire whom they like is totally laughable. And quite honestly, I don't have a lot of patience for the selective outrage from the press on this. Now, moving forward to your question, Dominic, if the Douglas County School Board wants to spite their critics and do right, they need to get laser focused on hiring a great superintendent. That's a great point, Kristen. Also joining us uh, via Skype, Denise Mayas, Public Policy Specialist and uh, Director of Mayas Solutions. Denise, it's great to have you back on the show. Uh, another side story to this whole issue has been the relations, the strained relationship between Douglas County uh, School teachers and its new board majority. Uh, do you expect other thing, other, I guess, chips to fall when it comes to that relationship moving forward? I, I do expect some chips to fall. I mean, pretty much to uh, Patty's point earlier, let's see what's going to happen. Uh, and I'm just going to kind of continue on with a little bit of what Kristen was saying. I'm just going to repeat the old adage about how elections matter. And local school boards are in, they are an important pillar in our kids' education. And yet turnout for some of these elections is really abysmal. It's very, very small. So if, for those of us who are going to continue to care through care about K through 12 education, we, we need to remain forever vigilant. Uh, the other piece of this is like, who knew that uh, school board elections would be World War III or would become so contentious? Um, you know, school board elections now, uh, there are a lot of places where they flipped. For example, at Douglas County, they flipped from less right-leaning to more right-leaning. Uh, Denver shifted from less teacher union-leaning to more teachers union-leaning. And so I think the teachers are going to have uh, some battles at, with the Douglas uh, school board. Um, but I think, uh, again, elections matter, and particularly school board ones. And I'll just say one last point on the lawsuit. You know, from what I've read, this particular lawsuit that has been filed against Douglas County under the open meetings law, it probably has legs. Uh, but at the end of the day, win, lose, or draw, Corey Weiss's fate is sealed. He is no longer the Douglas County school superintendent, and the school board has a real important job ahead of it. On Thursday, Governor Polis announced a new public safety plan that would direct $113 million to mental health services, public safety staffing, and early intervention methods. According to Governor Polis, the model is designed to provide more support for community-driven responses to crime. A coalition of law enforcement groups criticized the package, stating that policies like the ones presented have directly contributed to the rise in crime rates. 
Penn, as a former state lawmaker, um, the question I have for you is this. This was presented as a group of bills. So for the whole package to work, I imagine that they would like to see all that pass. Is it harder to pass a collection of specific bills or should this have been trying to wrap up in, in, in a larger bill that it's a little bit more of a monstrosity, but it's kind of a you know, all or nothing sort of approach. What do you think of the approach of a package of bills? You know, I think this approach is exactly right. I, it, when you deal, especially at a state legislative level, when you've got a number of different policies you want to implement, and each of them are a component of a broader overall strategy, you're better off having separate bills because it, there are people who are going to have issues with different parts of the strategy. So if they can tweak or perhaps give a no vote on one bill and vote yes on the others, you have a greater likelihood of getting them all passed. If you put it all in one omnibus bill, you force people to vote up or down, and it, everybody may have an issue with one component of it, and then you put them in the conundrum, either voting yes for everything or no for everything. So this was the right approach. Um, I, the two things that surprised me here was, number one, that Governor Polis supported this sort of approach, but number two, the way law enforcement responded. With people crying about defund the police, this was, I thought, a thoughtful way of saying, look, let's redirect resources so that our law enforcement officers don't have to be everything to everybody all the time and start investing in other strategies to help address the, some of the calls and conditions they meet. So this seemed to me like a reasonable approach. The devil will be in the details, but I'm just surprised at the strong reaction to what appeared to be a pretty reasonable approach to deal with a clear problem we have, which is a rising crime rate. Kristen, it seems that uh, how to address rising crime rates is becoming the defining issue for 2022, especially being an election year. I know the Common Sense Institute has done a variety of research between inflation and other issues. Do you think crime and how to address it is really going to be the headline as we head into the election? I 100% do, and thank you so much. I'm so glad we're talking about crime today. I do want to give a shout out to CSI fellows George Brockler and Mitch Morrissey for their groundbreaking work. It's important for viewers to know the facts. Facts are that total cost of crime in this state in 2020 was over 27 billion, that's with a B, billion dollars. Colorado had the highest increase in property crime rate. Our 2020 murder rate was 106% higher than 10 years ago, and we had the highest motor vehicle theft rate. Those are the facts. However, some policymakers, even some media outlets, say crime isn't as bad as we think, and they've glossed over this data. Flash forward this week, what we just saw, we saw really bold statements from Democrat leadership, which signals to me this will be a key issue in the election. Hancock called out the legislature for weakening prison sentences and judges for reckless use of PR bonds. We saw the big press conference yesterday with Governor Polis. So I'm a little bit confused because one day some are saying that crime isn't a problem. And then the next we have a statewide action plan. My guess is that most people, most Coloradans are saying it's about time we dig in and tackle this problem. Denise, there's clearly a lot of ways to address it and different ways to address it. What did you think of the plan proposed by Governor Polis? Yeah, I think two things are really important here. Number one, I do want to give um, kudos to Governor Polis for, for committing dollars 
not to failed policies of the past like tough on crime and broken windows policing, but rather putting money to programs and things that will actually help prevent crime in the first instance. So super important is that the dollars that are being appropriated here, most particularly those in behavioral health dollars, it is important that those behavioral health dollars go to communities and that they go to community providers. We need culturally appropriate, culturally responsive and culturally relevant services. Community providing services to community is the way to go. And so I give Governor Polis for uh, many kudos for recognizing it. Now there has been a whole, the second thing I'm gonna mention real quickly is there has been a whole lot of fear mongering on the spike in crime. The issue isn't whether or not some crime is rising and some is not, because I think we all can agree that in some areas there is a spike in crime and in other areas there is a plateau. But the audacity of some to con who continue to blame the spike in crime on criminal legal reform initiatives of the past astounds me. There is no data for that and there is simply no evidence to support that. And I'll just say that it is really time for all of us to focus our time our money and our energy on the things that will work. Preventing crime, pointing fingers isn't helpful, and finger pointing wrapped in a partisan agenda is even less helpful. Patty, crime feels like one of these issues that uh, hits very close to home. And so my question for you in seeing how a lot of different entities are looking at this, cities and states, is it best handled with bills at the state level or is it best handled with different ideas and programs at the, at the city level? Well, it has to be handled everywhere at all fronts. I would say we could agree on one thing. No one at this table is pro-crime. Um, but, but how you look at the statistics can be different. I mean, we did a takeout on the Common Sense Institute's um, report, and you people do look at that very differently. You look at the murder rate in Denver, which is the highest it's been in four decades, but our population is also... 20% larger, so the numbers can skew. But the fact is crime is a problem. I think the way they came up, Polis's plan to divide it into different projects is good because I think we can also agree on the fact that mental health clearly needs to be dealt with. And the focus on that, which has to be on a local level because they're the ones who have the, the uh, programs in place to help with it, that's important, the STAR program in Denver, which got a shout out, which is sending social workers and people who are trained to deal with social problems to encampments rather than send police there. That's a good way to deal with that issue too. But it's gonna be a fight on many, many fronts. And what we have to do is quit having the criminal amount of finger pointing, which is exactly what we saw yesterday, and start looking at what will really make a difference. And it's gonna be incremental. It's going to be on all fronts. Former Colorado State Senate President Leroy Garcia's departure triggered new leadership elections this week. State Senator Steve Fenberg from Boulder will be the new Senate president, while Senator Dominic Moreno from Commerce City becomes majority leader, and Senator Rachel Zenzinger now returns to the Joint Budget Committee. Kristen, we start with you on this one. Uh, clearly, Senate leadership is tilting a little bit further left with this move, with Leroy Garcia leaving and Senator Fenber taking his place. How do you think that will impact the future of the session? You know, to me, not everything in politics is about ideology or beliefs. We want smart, talented, capable people in leadership with our state. And congrats to Leroy. It's super exciting, though, for me to see that Colorado has such dedicated servants and leadership. To me, it's even more exciting to see a smart woman leading the JVC. 
I will, uh, a, 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 I will echo those remarks, Kristen, about uh, Senator Zinziger, only because if, with full disclosure, uh, she and I were both uh, classmates at Regis University on the speech and debate team. So it's nice to see a, a, future, a, a, for, a, a fellow Regis Ranger doing well. But uh, politics aside, let's get to the other question for you, Denise. Denise, um, when we look at Senator Fenberg and Senator Moreno, these are two senators who are not shy about disagreeing with Governor Polis on occasion, even more than a few occasions, on policies. Do you think that Governor Polis and Senate leadership have more battles ahead in the rest of this session? I think we're gonna we're gonna throw it back to you, Denise. Just in a second, we're being in Skype world, we didn't exactly catch your audio, so I think we'll be able to catch that again. So, Denise, the question again is: Do you think there's going to be uh, a conflict between Governor Polis and Senate leadership now that's a leading a little bit further left? Um, thank you, and uh, apologies on the sound there. And first of all, happy to know that you're a, another speech and debate person because I'm I'm one of those nerds as well. Um, look, I, I, I think there will be a little bit more tension. I think one of the quotes, in fact, that Senator Moreno made, now majority leader, made the comment that he wasn't going to dial back his criticisms of the governor. And so I think there may be some battles there that we'll see. You know, a lot of those things happen behind the scenes. Um, they they probably, um, they certainly have happened under the other, the former Senate President uh, Garcia. And so I think those things will happen no matter what. And it'll be interesting to see how they turn out. I do want to give a shout out to the Senate, to former Senator, Senator, or Senate President, excuse me, Leroy Garcia. He's a personal friend of mine. I am sorry to see him leave. And I am sad to see um, uh, Majority Leader Moreno leave the JBC. He's, he's a brilliant guy. Uh, knowing the budget is such a huge asset. And, and of course, um, he'll just, he's just going to be great at his role and um, uh, good things to come. Patty, I, I think it's a fair question because around this table, we get into a lot of inside base when it comes to politics. So does a move like this really matter for the, the average Colorado watching this show? It's not going to this year because we're coming on an election year. So if there are going to be some fights, I think they'll be worked out in a relatively polite way. It is not like Governor Polis is shy. He will certainly be able to take up any issues he has with Fenberg and Moreno on his own. But I think they will all be looking towards November and the fact that as Democrats, they're going to want to win and they're going to have to make some concessions. Penn, clearly you have a lot of experience here as a former lawmaker. Uh, is this a big deal? What do you think of the changes? What do we need to know? Well, first, congratulations to um, Leroy Garcia and his appointment. Um, I think the changes are fine. Um, I think we will see differences in style and temperament and philosophy, but that level of disagreement is fine uh, because Democrats aren't don't all think alike and neither do all Republicans. And it's good that you get different voices and different opinions at the table to work through issues. For the vast majority of issues, this is not going to make any difference, particularly since we're in the middle of February um, and, you know, you've, you've lost um, a, almost a third of the legislative session already. So you've really got to focus on getting the bills processed um, through the system and getting a budget in place. On Monday, the Denver City Council agreed to provide the Colorado Village Collaborative an additional $3.9 million to develop sanctioned campsites. 
Campsites will provide shelter and services to around 370 people without homes, with a goal to transition 90 of them into permanent housing. The decision was met with appeals almost immediately by neighbors of the sites who, see, who say living near regulated campgrounds make them feel unsafe. Denise, we start with you on this one. Uh, what do you think of the move by the city, and do you think that it will continue to have success as smaller ones have had uh, recently? I, I do, and I really do give um, kudos to the Denver City Council for moving forward on this initiative. And really, lots of kudos and congratulations to the Village Collaborative. They've been doing these sorts of um, uh, safe uh, camping sites uh, in different parts of the city with really no serious problems. And in fact, the one uh, here in North Denver, my part of town, uh, we didn't even ask for a good neighbor agreement and there have been no problems whatsoever. And I think for the naysayers, we have to ask what, what are our alternatives? And these, this, these uh, outdoor camping sites, they're not intended to be permanent solutions. And so I get that. Um, the alternative is we have our individuals experiencing homelessness, sleeping on the streets, in alleyways, on storefronts, um, and so this is definitely a worthwhile investment. And I say yay to it, and let's continue to do it. And I love the um, the whole notion of let's now take them to the next step of transitional permanent housing. Let's keep our eye on that prize as well. Patty, what do you think this move by the city of Denver? Do you think more to come? Well, this is certainly more than was happening before. When this was first proposed back in April 2020, Hancock was very adamantly against these kinds of safe camping sites. But they've proven he changed his mind within a few months. They found locations that worked, and they have been successful. They are, it's only one part of how to deal with the issue. This is for people who don't want to be in shelters, indoor shelters, but they feel comfortable. They're getting services. And this is federal money that the state has the city has allocated if it gets 90 people into housing, if it gets 370 people into more kinds of services, it's a greater good. Penn, what do you think, a good move by the city? You know, it's long overdue, and my concern is it's so little, so late. Patty referenced the time frame. The time frame was actually, you know, when I and others are running for mayor in 2019, I and others advocated this as a central part of an approach. You needed to have a way to bring people together so that you can bring other services, whether it's mental health, substance abuse, showers, laundromats, everything to begin to help stabilize them so you could transition them into transitional housing, employment, and some other things. I'm glad the city finally got around to doing this. Um, it's a very, very small step, but it's a step in the right direction. I'm a bit disappointed that by their own estimate, um, they're only going to be able to transition a third of the people into transitional housing. So that means that whether you start with 350, 70 slots, they're going to fill up again or stay full the entire time. Um, and management is important. And, and like Denise found in her example, in Park Hill, we had Park Hill, Greater Park Hill United Methodist Church. They had um, a secure camping site. And although neighbors objected initially, not a single problem was purported with the operation. Kristen, wrap it up for us. 
So to me, this just feels like another big, large expense with no strategy behind it. This is not going to solve the homelessness crisis that we're facing. The city needs a strategy right now and bold leadership. This piecemeal strategy of $4 million here, $10 million here, it's not going to work. We are now closing in on spending over $800 million per year in the Denver metro area addressing homelessness. And what do we have to show for it? Not a whole lot of progress. What I do find fascinating is that Aurora is going on the offensive with a clear plan. And I think that there's going to be a bright line contrast in the next six months, year, two years between Aurora and Denver. And it will be interesting to see what shapes up. Let's get to our very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Well, I'm heading back to Mesa County for the gift that keeps on giving. Tina Peters, it's, who seemed to be arrested twice this week. It's a little vague on it. First, she had um, a laptop with her, not a laptop, I guess it was a PowerBook, that where she had recorded something that wasn't supposed to be recorded, maybe wasn't hers. The officers went to get her, and she wound up maybe kicking one, which led to the second issue. You just can't make up stories like this. You certainly can. There's a made-for-TV movie in there somewhere. Penn. Uh, uh, Tina Peters is a one-woman criminal enterprise. But uh, anyway, um, my disgrace is city and county of Denver. You know, um, I was part of a group of citizen volunteers that got 301 passed on the ballot and defeated 302 because we wanted citizen input into how land subject to conservation easement was reused. And our group was the only one that the city expelled from the, the, what they call a community visioning process because we didn't agree with the city's vision that we had to take the 155 acres and redevelop it into a mixed-use development. Chris, let me go to you for your disgrace of the week. Uh, it has to be the Stacey Abrams photo. She's unmasked, she's preening, while all of the other little kids are in masks. It's a disgrace for sure. And I think that it actually might be the moment that ended this pandemic. <laughs> Denise, we go to you for your disgrace of the week. Well, I was going to use Tina Peters, but shoot, um, I'll go to the other one that I had on my list, and it's the RNC's statement that an attempt to overthrow the results of a valid presidential election through violence at the U.S. Capitol was, quote, legitimate political discourse. I think that's disgraceful. Time to say something nice about somebody. Patty? I'm going to Broadway, where Erica Ryder has been running Hope Tank, a really wonderful business that helps local causes, helps local artists. She's having a block party outside tomorrow before she closes. Penn. Uh, to History Colorado and to Westward for advertising all of the activities going on during Black History Month. We all ought to attend something. You're here. Kristen, we go to you to say something nice. I'm just hoping that Vaughn gets another big ring this weekend. We're going to be watching football in my house. <laughs> I, I, I think a variety of households will be joining you in that endeavor, Kristen, for sure. And Denise, we go to you for your Say Something Nice. Yeah. I have um, really enjoyed this week reading a former mayor and former transportation secretary Federico's Pena's book, which is not bad for a South Texas boy. And what I really took from it is the phrase, imagine a great city is still very relevant today. Let's imagine. 
Indeed it is. And I will join the Say Something Nice as we thank all of our members who are making all of our different programs possible this month. As Penn referenced our uh, Black History Month, you'll be able to see a variety of special programming every Wednesday night here at PBS 12. And if you missed any of it, you can be sure to check it out at pbs12.org as a lot of those are on demand. And if you're a member, you get the special benefit of PBS 12 Passport, which gets, lets you catch up on everything, especially some amazing, amazing new season of Finding, finding Your Roots, which is just another great program that you've made possible as our member. For everybody here at Colorado Inside Out and PBS 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for watching. Good night.